All right, if you've listened this far, you know the deal. The book that came out of this podcast is called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone by me, available wherever fine books are sold. Also, the podcast I do these days is called The Tech Meme Ride Home. Search any podcast app for Ride Home, and you should find The Tech Meme Ride Home, which is all the day's tech news every weekday in just 15 minutes. If you like this show, you'll love that one. (sighs) The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. I have to figure that most people listening to this podcast are probably familiar with the following audio clip. So, three things. A widescreen iPod with touch controls, a revolutionary mobile phone, and a breakthrough internet communications device. An iPod, a phone, and an internet communicator. An iPod, a phone. Are you getting it? These are not three separate devices. This is one device. And we are calling it iPhone. Today, today, Apple is going to reinvent the phone. That, of course, is Steve Jobs on January 9th, 2007, announcing the iPhone. But it turns out that almost exactly nine years before Steve Jobs spoke those words and introduced the world to the iPhone, there was another three-in-one device that was introduced to the world, And it just so happens that that device was also called the iPhone. But the company that brought this first iPhone to market, all the way back in 1998, was called Infogear, not Apple. This is the story of the iPhone that came before the iPhone. Back in the late 1990s, there was a sort of fad for devices called Internet Appliances. The idea was to have smaller, purpose-designed devices that would allow users to jump on the web and do web things without having to whip out a laptop or a PC. Remember, this was back in the day when laptops could still be 10-pound affairs. So the industry envisioned smaller devices that you could put on your desk, in your kitchen, maybe on your wall, that would allow you to check your email, browse the web, 
sort of, you know, as a quick and easy in and out affair. A Skunk Works project for just such an appliance was started in 1995 inside of all places National Semiconductor. Three engineers, Chaim Bendelak, Yuval Shahar, and Reuven Marco, were given company funds to explore the possibilities of a product that would be part internet and part telephone. They called their brainstorm Project Mercury. At around the same time, a venture capitalist by the name of Robert Ackerman was consulting with National Semiconductor. And towards the end of a routine meeting at National, Ackerman's hosts offered to show him around the engineering lab. It was there that Ackerman would first see Project Mercury. Uh, walking through the labs, we ran into uh, one of these research projects that, uh, you know, basically it's a team had taken a, an 8-bit processor and, uh, you know, that they had used in fax machines and, and basically uh, uh, built a very crude uh, prototype device, but a functioning prototype device with a proprietary little browser that would allow you to uh, browse the web. And, uh, we, you know, we saw that project and I said, that's the future. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, and what immediately flashed in my mind was the, was the evolution of the information appliance, the telephone being the original, inf- uh, in, you know, information appliance. As he would later recount in a blog post, Ackerman said, quote, it looked like something my 11-year-old would build by running through the junkyard and collecting pieces. When I was told it was a telephone integrated with a web browser and a screen, I had an aha moment. The ragtag collection of circuit boards lying in front of me had the makings of exactly the sort of post-PC web-based computer that Silicon Valley's keenest minds were beginning to predict. End quote. Ackerman was so enthused by the project that he decided to extricate the technology from National Semiconductor's labs and use it as the foundation to launch a standalone business, which would become InfoGear Technology Corporation. Obviously, Ackerman would need to convince National Semiconductor to release not only the technology associated with Project Mercury, but also the engineers who had dreamed it up. The negotiations were, according to Ackerman, difficult, but things were resolved in the end by the direct intervention of National Semiconductor's then-president, Gilbert Emilio. In what would be the first of many ironic parallels with the eventual Apple iPhone, Gil Emilio would very shortly become CEO of Apple itself, and it would be Emilio who would purchase Next, thereby bringing Steve Jobs back to Apple. So we can give Gil Emilio credit for signing off on the first iPhone, but he also put into place the pieces that allowed the Apple iPhone to be developed years later. It seems that very early on in the development of this new all-in-one device, what had been called Project Mercury quickly acquired the name iPhone, complete with the lowercase i and uppercase P, just as with Apple's later invention. Bob Ackerman would explain the nomenclature this way. The way we came at it is we looked at, um, you know, the telephone being the original information appliance. And this, this was, 
you know, the evolution of the original information appliance on steroids. And so iPhone was internet phone, uh, you know, really is where we were coming from, information phone. Of course, there were other I antecedents for the I name convention. Most famously, around the same time in the late 1990s, there was the community website iVillage, which would have a storied IPO and would eventually be purchased by NBC, as we've heard on previous episodes. NBC's own one-time internet efforts were coincidentally called NBCI. And as you've heard, one of the founders of iVillage, Robert Levitan, recently told me that iVillage had lifted the naming convention specifically from the iGolf channel on AOL, but also that they were inspired by similar iCommunities on places like AOL and Prodigy. There were, of course, other startups in the dot-com era with names like iManage and iPrint, and there was a similar fad at the same time for e-names. For example, Apple's own brief AOL online competitor was called eWorld. There was also, of course, eToys and ePinions, as well as many, many others. Aside from the naming similarities, though, InfoGear's iPhone would have plenty of other eerie similarities to Apple's later device, both philosophically and technically. For one thing, just as in Steve Jobs' famous mantra about three devices being one, the InfoGear iPhone was designed to do three core things as well. Phone calls, email, and light web browsing. But it wanted to do each of those things well. And from the very beginning, there was an almost Apple-like obsession with simplicity and ease of use for the InfoGear iPhone. Interested in presenting a consumer-friendly image and a user-friendly device, InfoGear even went so far as to hire Frog Design, which was famous for the previous industrial design of various Apple and Mac computers. So, you know, in our particular case, our design criteria was, uh, could my mother use it? You know, if you could use a telephone and you could use an ATM, uh, that was the skill set that should be required in order to, uh, you know, engage with the Internet. And if you could do that, um, you were going to significantly expand the number of people that could tap into and benefit from the Internet. And, in fact, it would be transformational. Just as interestingly, even though the InfoGear iPhone offered a pared-down slide-out physical keyboard, its prominent mode of interaction was a small black-and-white LCD touchscreen, similar to the ATM screens that existed at the time. As you can see from the photos that I have on the website on the page for this episode, things like email and the web were easily accessible by tapping graphical icons on the screen. Sound familiar? Tapping icons to launch applications? Touch-enabled LCD screens were still such an immature technology in 1997-1998 that they actually presented InfoGear with something of a problem. The company had hoped that the bill of materials, the cost of manufacturing each iPhone unit, would top out at about $100. 
This would enable the company to market its iPhone in the $250 to $300 range. But the problem was that each 7-inch 640 by 480 grayscale touchscreen alone came in at $80 a pop. So much as cell phone makers learn to get telecom companies to subsidize the cost of handsets on behalf of consumers, Infogear began seeking out a partner that would subsidize the cost of its iPhone. Unfortunately, despite making the rounds to all the baby bells and even most of the major cable companies, Infogear was never able to nail down a deep-pocketed partner. Um, you know, we would you know, we would sit down and talk to uh, the telephone companies, and I was working with uh, a lot of the major telcos at the time. And you know, you talk about this converged device uh, that was you know the the uh, the intersection of of the web and and telephony, uh, and they would look at you like you had three eyes. They go, what? But you know, but the telephone is the telephone, and the internet is the internet. And you say, yeah, but what if you brought these two together? The telephone is the telephone, and the Internet is the Internet. <laughs> and you just simply could not have a, a conversation uh, with even some of the brightest minds around these two worlds coming together uh, and having a transformative impact. And thus, when the device was finally unveiled to the public at CES in early 1998, the iPhone carried a price tag of $499 with a separate $19.95 monthly charge for internet access. Despite this high-end price point, early reviews of the iPhone were nothing short of enthusiastic. Personal Computer World called the iPhone, quote, an exciting look at the future of telephony integration, end quote. PC World described it as, quote, a well-designed product that smoothly combines phone, internet, and email access in one small console, end quote. The iPhone actually won Innovations 98 Award from the 1998 CES and a Best of Show Award for Outstanding Desktop Hardware Product at Fall Internet World 98. And all of this came in spite of the device's many limitations, Because the first iPhone only had one phone line, users were unable to make a call and browse the web at the same time, something that Apple's eventual iPhone famously had no problem with. The unit had a measly 16-bit processor, and the entire iPhone only had one megabyte of total onboard memory. We were were constrained, uh, not by vision, but by the availability of technology, uh, which really, really defined what we could do. And, uh, you know, we ended up, uh, you know, the first generation iPhones, and as you know, they were branded iPhones, and we owned that trademark, uh, were based on 16-bit processors. Uh, they were, you know, memory constrained. Um, the, uh, there was no wireless technology, so it, it needed to connect to a, a wired infrastructure. Um, you know, the most expensive component uh, in the in the original iPhones was the display, which was a 16 grayscale display, 7-inch display. In spite of all these limitations, however, the Infogear iPhone was not only a forward-thinking converged device, just as promised, it actually had true innovations all across its product offering. Among them, 
very early use of touch technology. Whenever a web page displayed a phone number, the iPhone automatically turned the number into a touchscreen button, allowing the user to dial just by tapping the screen. Also, because the device was so constrained, the bulk of the processing was dumped back on a server in an early model of what we would today call cloud computing. The Apple iPhone famously launched with visual voicemail, but the InfoGear iPhone had something similar. Voice messages were transcribed and showed up on the screen along with a button that allowed you to automatically dial and return the call. The InfoGear iPhone had a Maps application with data provided by R.R. Donnelly and Sons. The InfoGear iPhone offered movie listings from Hollywood Online. And it even had a newsstand-like application that provided content from Time, Inc.'s family of magazines, including People, Time, Money, and even Sports Illustrated. An early InfoGear press release related to the iPhone, stressed that the iPhone would not replace the PC, but instead would coexist with PCs, much as the microwave coexists with a conventional oven. Sort of like Steve Jobs' eventual cars versus trucks metaphor, a sort of post-PC message in the pre-post-PC era, I guess. InfoGear intended for the iPhone to be the vanguard of an entire family of products with color screens eventually, video conferencing, voice over IP, etc. And indeed, there was an iPhone 2 model released in 1999, complete with a second phone line and a redesigned keyboard, which Industry Standard magazine said was, quote, closest to the brass ring, unquote, when it came to internet appliances. Over the course of the product line, it's estimated that approximately 100,000 iPhones were sold. There's even a product listing still available on Amazon.com that you can view. I have the link to it again in the show notes. It says that the product is currently unavailable. Because in the end, the fad for internet appliances proved to be just that, a fad. A Wall Street Journal article from 1998 bore the headline, The Future Calls. Smartphones have lots of cool features, but not that many customers. Robert Ackerman simply thinks that the InfoGear iPhone was a product that was a bit ahead of its time. Well, I, I, I think, you know, I've, I've, over my career, you know, I've seen, uh, you know, numerous instances where you identify an opportunity and you develop a concept around that opportunity to do something that's truly disruptive in the marketplace. Um, the, the problem is sometimes is that that vision is ahead of the market. Before the iPhone could be consigned to the dustbin of history, however, one of InfoGear's later round investors, Cisco, came to the rescue and gave the technology a home. Cisco was just beginning to embark on a push toward consumer-facing hardware that would culminate, famously or infamously, in the eventual purchase of router maker Linksys, as well as the flip video camera. So at the apex of the dot-com era, in March of 2000, Cisco offered $300 million in stock to purchase InfoGear. The offer was happily accepted. 
And thus, the iPhone technology, or more crucially, the iPhone name and trademark, passed on to Cisco. Cisco would briefly use the iPhone name to market a line of voiceover IP telephones under the Linksys brand. And when Apple finally announced its iPhone in early 2007, Cisco briefly sued Apple for trademark infringement. The negotiations for this were not without some classic Steve Jobs-style negotiation tactics, but eventually Cisco agreed to allow Apple to use the iPhone moniker going forward. Today, Bob Ackerman is sanguine about the iPhone name living on because, in a way, it represents his original notion of a converged, all-in-one device living on. Uh, you know... I can I can look at where things are today, and I find a level of satisfaction in that. Uh, I I would be less than honest if I didn't say there wasn't some frustration uh, that that goes with that satisfaction of you know if if only we had gotten the timing a little bit better, right idea and you know directionally correct. Eventually, you know that's where the market went, but we were just too early. It just wasn't feasible to do it at that point in time because we had to invent so many underlying elements that would be required in order to eventually build the platform. And, you know, you, you, you see that throughout the history of innovation. Um, you know, you could be right on the fundamentals, and if you get the timing wrong, uh, it can be catastrophic. Because for a startup company, you know, timing uh, require, it requires additional capital to wait for the market to develop. And not often do you find investors have you know, sort of the unlimited patience to continue to invest to keep a company alive, waiting for proof that validates the concept. The architecture was right. The vision was right. Product name was pretty good. Intellectual property was right on the money. Um, we were early into the marketplace. And, you know, 10 years later, a very different story. The rest, as they say, is history. Except in good Apple fashion, there's one more thing. InfoGear actually designed and developed an iPad also. As you'll hear, even I couldn't believe this coincidence. You know, it's funny. We, we, we never talk about it, but we actually did a wireless device um, that was called the iPad. <laughs> and I've got one wait, of those wait, in wait, my wait, office wait, as well. Wait, 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 wait. I, I haven't seen that anywhere. You didn't actually call no. it the iPad. Hold on. Hold we on. did. Wait, we wait, did. wait, wait, we did. wait. I'm going to take myself off the line. Say that again. No, we actually we uh, we created a prototype. Never took it to the market, but it was a it was a concept piece that we dubbed our iPad. And you know this was you know this is post Newton having come out from Apple, you know as kind of the, the the pad, the personal digital assistant as they were called at that point in time. And so we we built a device that was a touch screen with a stylus uh, that was to connect wirelessly. And it was just it was a concept piece. And we, we dubbed it the iPad. Never saw the market, uh, but uh, but I've I've got, I've got one of those in my office as well. It's not framed on the wall because it it never made it to product to the market. But it, it continued on that same eye influence of of information, uh, you know, uh, information appliances. If this is your first time listening to the Internet History Podcast, be sure to look us up and subscribe to the show because there's. More great early internet history where that came from. And since I like to think of this project as an oral history project, I'm going to include now the full unedited audio of my interview with Robert Ackerman.
What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Essentially, we can just begin sure. uh, with, um, so you're a consultant at National Semiconductor. And um, somehow you're turned on to this sort of skunk works project, right? Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm consulting with uh, the corporate development team uh, around, around innovation. And uh, at the time, there was a, you know, Gil Emilio was the CEO of National Semiconductor and had a big push underway to uh, sort of reinvigorate innovation within National Semiconductor. And they put together a program uh, where, you know, basically engineers could come up with an idea uh, secure internal funding of up to $100,000 uh, in order to pursue that idea. So this is, uh, you know, years before Google came up with the concept of, you know, 10% of your time allocated to things that you found interesting. And uh, looking at the projects that had, uh, that had been developed under that program, uh, walking through the labs, we ran into uh, one of these research projects that, uh, you know, basically, it's a team had taken a, an 8-bit processor and, uh, you know, that they had used in fax machines and, and basically uh, uh, built a very crude uh, prototype device, but a functioning prototype device with a proprietary little browser that would allow you to uh, browse the web. And, uh, we, you know, we saw that project and I said, that's the future. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, you know, and what immediately flashed in my mind was the was the evolution of the information appliance, the telephone being the original, inf- uh, in, you know, information appliance. And uh, we we then set about uh, over a number of months, uh, you know, uh, allowing that project to move outside of National Semiconductor into a startup company. And uh, you know, it was a, it was a it was a process that would fit with, you know, was fraught with perils and time consuming backwards and forward steps, but uh, throughout the process, there was a commitment by uh, Gil and some of the Corp Dev team to, to give, let this thing come to life outside of National Semiconductor, and uh, that led to, uh, to me creating InfoGear uh, to take that concept, the intellectual property, and, uh, and begin uh, evolving it to a product that could be delivered to the market. So let me, let me interrupt real quick. Um, so there, there was sort of this fad in the late 90s for um, uh, uh, internet appliances was the term. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. it, it speak on that a little bit. Well, there was, there was, you know, the, the internet was coming along and, and, and people were trying to figure out, um, you, you know, what do you, what do you, you know, is the internet just for, uh, is it, is it just for conducting to, to PCs, generic PCs, or is there something more to it? So there was a, 
there was a number of companies that were, uh, you know, coming up with ideas about, as you say, internet appliances that somehow could be uh, intelligent, you know, in- connected to this intelligent network fabric to provide some level of functionality. And what we saw, you know, our our vision coming out of this national semiconductor effort was, um, how do we take the the power, the resource, the availability of the internet? and extend that resource to those that weren't PC literate. Uh, and so, you know, in our particular case, our design criteria was, uh, could my mother use it? You know, if you could use a telephone and you could use an ATM, uh, that was the skill set uh, that should be required in order to, uh, you know, engage with the Internet. And if you could do that, um, you were going to significantly expand the number of people that could tap into and benefit from the Internet. And, in fact, it would be transformational. And so we came at it from an information appliance perspective, but there are a number of people coming up with different ideas, all sort of in that category of Internet appliance, where let's see how we can connect a device to the Internet and do something interesting with it. Well, it occurs to me, you know, there's uh, when when – that famous video of when Steve Jobs uh, launches the iPhone, it's it's three devices in one. Are you getting it? It's all the same thing. Well, it's that same convergence of, of multiple use cases in one device. This just happens to be on a desktop device as opposed to an in-the-pocket device. But you were you were onto the same idea. We were. And, you know, the, the, the challenge at the time is obviously we were uh, – and I think one of the things we discovered at the time is we were, we were constrained uh, not by vision – but by the availability of technology, uh, which really, really defined what we could do. And, uh, you know, we ended up, uh, you know, the first generation iPhones, and as you know, they were branded iPhones, and we owned that trademark, uh, were based on 16-bit processors. Uh, they were, you know, memory constrained. Um, the, uh, there was no wireless technology, so it, it needed to connect to a, a wired infrastructure. Um, you know, the most expensive component uh, in the in the original iPhones was the display, which was a 16 grayscale display, seven inch display, and that was the most expensive item in the bill of materials. That was costing us 75 to 80 dollars uh, just for that display. Don't even think about color. Um, and so we were constrained by available technology that could be pulled together and integrated uh, into a device that would begin to deliver this experience to the marketplace. But interestingly enough. You know, the, the design considerations, uh, seamless integration of web and telephony, uh, touchscreen, which is what we used, uh, you know, very, very simple to use, a, a thin client architecture that, uh, that connected back to a server where the bulk of the processing would be done. Um, you know, part of that was driven by ease of use and functionality. Part of it was driven by the limitations of, of technology that we could deploy at a desktop level uh, or in a home uh, at a price point that we wanted to hit. And at that point in time, uh, you know, we wanted to hit a price point at retail that was no more than 499 And we were wrestling with, you know, bills of materials that we were, you know, hoping to keep at about $200. And, uh, you know, that's pretty thin margins for trying to put a product through, for example, a retail distribution. And, uh, you know, when we, when we sat down and started looking at, at channel opportunities, um, you know, we would, you know, we would sit down and talk to uh, the telephone companies. And I was working with uh, a lot of the major telcos at the time. And, 
you know, you talk about this converged device uh, that was, you know, the the uh, the intersection of, of the web and, and telephony, uh, and they would look at you like you had three eyes. They go, what? But you know, but the telephone is the telephone, and the internet is the internet. And you say, yeah, but what if you brought these two together? The telephone is the telephone, and the internet is the internet. <laughs> and you just simply could not have a, a conversation. Uh, with even some of the brightest minds around these two worlds coming together uh, and having a transformative impact uh, on a consumer. Uh, this was at a point in time where, um, you know, the cable companies were beginning to think about um, where they were going to extend uh, their product offering, you know, past cable, to, you know, just cable. And uh, cable telephony was one of the, uh, you know, applications they had come up with. And so I said, well, here's guys that are looking to get into, um, you know, the, the telephony business. They have an always-on pipe. It's a broadband pipe. Um, you know, here's an opportunity for them to take our device and bring it into the marketplace, leverage the fact that they want to be in telephony with their always-on pipe, uh, and bring a very differentiated product to the marketplace as opposed to what was their value proposition at the time around, you know, billing consolidation. Uh, we'll put your phone bill on your cable bill. That was the value proposition. And our point was, no, you can do something entirely different uh, in terms of, of, of going into the telephony business, but with a device that leverages that pipe. And over time, you can grow more and more applications. You can leverage that broadband connectivity. This, this eventually can lead to you know, video conferencing over this converged device. It really becomes a platform for all sorts of services, including, I remember us talking about monitoring alarm systems. You know, you have a platform now where you can deploy a, a, a portfolio of applications, you know, using this device as an endpoint on a network into the home. And, and again, they just looked at you like, what are you talking about? You know, telephony is telephony and the Internet's the Internet. <laughs> so it, was, it was pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I haven't, in, in my research, I haven't seen anything on this, uh, but I'm curious about the, the, the naming, the nomenclature, um, you know, because iPhone, this comes before there was an iMac and certainly before there was an iPod. I guess, I guess um, like things like iVillage were around, but do you remember uh, where the nomenclature for doing the iPhone came from? We, we spent a lot of time trying to figure out how do you, how do you define and name a new category? Uh, because this didn't exist. Uh, and, and the way we came at it is we looked at, um, you know, the telephone being the original information appliance. And this, this was, you know, the evolution of the original information appliance on steroids. And so iPhone was internet phone, uh, you know, really is where we were coming from, information phone. Uh, and so as we went around and around and around, I remember countless hours sitting at whiteboards, you know, drawing, you know, drawing timelines of history and evolution and, 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 you know, what was the value proposition we were trying to articulate? Who were we trying to articulate it to? Um, it was very much about, you know, building off of the familiarity of the telephone, the broad acceptance of the telephone, and really positioning, you know, our iPhones as a logical, you know, extension of that paradigm, but now on steroids as a result of this access 
to the internet. Um, you know, we didn't, you know, the, if you go back to the original design criteria of this is something my mother could use, may or may not be conversant typing. Uh, so, yeah, we had keyboards, but it should be touch screen so it was easy to use, back to the ATM metaphor. But we did a lot of things in those days, uh, you know, uh, you know hotkeys, linking of, of telephone numbers, uh, you know, with web content. So if you, if you browsed uh, on the web and you pulled up a classified ad and there was a telephone number, we automatically converted that telephone number to a touch dial. And you could touch the button on the screen, and it automatically would initiate a phone call. Uh, when we took a, a voice message, uh, because we had a built-in voice recorder, uh, you know, the voice message would show up on the screen, transcribed. You could touch the button, and you would return the call. So, you know, a lot of things that we take for granted today were things that you know we were working on basically almost 20 years ago now. Uh, two more questions, uh, and the first one I'm gonna. I'm going to repeat something that I, I've seen you uh, uh, say before, and I, I'd encourage you to say it again if, if the idea is still relevant so that I can get the audio. But um, you, you had said that um, for, for any innovation, uh, timing is everything, and, and being too early with an innovation or a product can be as problematic as being too late. So in the context of how this converged device has kind of taken over the world, like... Um, what are your thoughts on that again? Well, I, I, I think, you know, I've, I've, over my career, you know, I've seen, uh, you know, numerous instances where you identify an opportunity and you develop a concept around that opportunity to do something that's truly disruptive in the marketplace. Um, the, the problem is sometimes is that that vision is ahead of the market and that may be ahead of the market in terms of market adoption uh, where you have to spend a long time and for a startup company it means a lot of money developing the market getting it to a place where it's prepared to embrace whatever that innovation is sometimes it, it comes from a product perspective uh, where you have a product vision but there is so much innovation required uh, in the elements of that product that realizes that vision, uh, that your development project is almost unbounded. Uh, you know, when we talked a few moments ago about the original iPhones, I mean, uh, you know, we were using 16-bit processors. Why? Because we were trying to hit a price point. You know, the best we could use was grayscale displays. Why? Because we were trying to hit a price point. There were a whole series of compromises that we had to make in the product in order to hit a price point that would find some resonance in the marketplace. And at the end of the day, we built and sold about 100,000 devices. But, you know, if you look about, you know, what we were doing back in 96 and 97 and, and the traction that took place uh, when Apple introduced its iPhones, uh, you know, what's the difference other than, you know, 8 to 10 years? Uh, market maturity, um, you know, people becoming uh, more familiar with the Internet, uh, the Internet itself evolving in terms of the applications, the utility of, of the Internet for a broader spectrum of society, deeper penetration of PCs, so more people are exposed to the Internet. Uh, you also had technology, which continued to evolve, uh, so that you could get a, a more compelling experience in a smaller package with more performance at that same price point. So I think, you know, we were directionally correct with respect to our vision 
Uh, I think the design criteria, the overall architecture, uh, I think we were right on the money, uh, you know, probably in, in 80% of, of those efforts. Uh, we were, however, early into the market uh, before the market really understood how to embrace, uh, you know, this new uh, category of device. I think the reactions from the telcos and the cable companies was just one example of being ahead of the market. Um, but I've, I've, you know, I've seen this before. I, you know, early in my career, I looked at uh, something we coined called computer-aided software engineering, which was, you know, gee, couldn't we develop a set of tools, software tools, to begin to increase the productivity of, of software developers? Um, and coming from a software development background, it's a, it's a problem that I understood very, very well. And we sat down and said, let's, you know, this is coming on the heels of computer-aided engineering, so why don't we do the same thing for software development? We'll call it computer-aided software engineering. And we looked at, a, I ran across a project at Xerox Park called the Mesa Project, uh, which was basically building a software development environment along with a language and a platform. Uh, and we looked at that as a model and say, can't we take that and, and basically replicate that paradigm in a, in a more open environment for C, for example. And when we, we looked at that, and I worked with the team at Mesa, Xerox, uh, that were on the Mesa project. Xerox was interested in licensing that technology out. And I sit down with that Mesa team, and we started talking about what would be required in order to develop a first-generation product. And, you know, our best estimate at that point in time was that it was 80 man-years of development, which you knew meant it was, it was 200 to 250 man-years of development um, because so many of the underlying elements that we would require from a functional perspective to deliver that solution didn't exist and, in fact, needed to be developed themselves. So not only were you going to try, you know, and, and create this new platform, you had to build a lot of the fundamental elements upon which that platform would be built, which significantly expanded the development effort, expanded the development timeline, increased the capital available to the point where right idea and, you know, directionally correct, eventually, you know, that's where the market went. But we were just too early. It just wasn't feasible to do it at that point in time because we had to invent so many underlying elements that would be required in order to eventually build the platform. And, you know, you, you, you see that throughout the history of innovation. Um, you know, you could be right on the fundamentals, and if you get the timing wrong, uh, it can be catastrophic because for a startup company, you know, timing uh, require, it requires additional capital to wait for the market to develop. And not often do you find investors have, you know, sort of the unlimited patience to continue to invest to keep a company alive, waiting for proof that validates the concept. And I think, you know, our original iPhones, while we got them into the marketplace, we did sell 100,000. The architecture was right. The vision was right. Product name was pretty good. Intellectual property was right on the money. Um, we were early into the marketplace. And, you know, 10 years later, a very different story. Well, uh, final question to that end. Um, now that this vision uh, that, that you were a bit early with has basically taken over the entire world, or at least certainly the tech world, um, on a personal level, is there some sort of like validation or um, satisfaction? Uh, it, well, you know, there is. I mean, it's uh, you know, part of the reason why, you know, yes, I'm an ex-CEO, but uh, the reason I love being a venture capitalist is that, 
you know, I love working with entrepreneurs who are passionate about inventing the future. Uh, I've had the pleasure of participating in that process personally as an entrepreneur. Uh, you know, I can, I can look at where things are today and I find a level of satisfaction in that. Uh, I, I would be less than honest if I didn't say there wasn't some frustration uh, that, that goes with that satisfaction of, you know, if, if only we had gotten the timing a little bit better. But, uh, you know, in my office in San Francisco, uh, we built two generations of iPhones. I have, the, uh, the, I have a, a release of each of those two generations in my wall, uh, on my wall in San Francisco that reminds me every time I walk into the office of, uh, of that wild ride uh, and, and how, how exciting it was and how satisfying it was. And, you know, it, it reminds you what, what motivates entrepreneurs when they get up every day, you know, just to, you know, to, to, to quote, you know, Steve, to do things that are insanely great uh, and the enthusiasm, the excitement, and the adrenaline rush that, that goes with that. You know, it's funny, we, we, we never talk about it, but we actually did a wireless device um, that was called the iPad. <laughs> and I've got one wait, of those wait, in wait, my wait, office wait, as well. Wait, 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 wait. I, I haven't seen that anywhere. You didn't actually call no. it the iPad. Hold on. Hold we on. did. Wait, we wait, did. wait, wait, we did. wait. I'm going to take myself off the line. Say that again. No, we actually, we, uh, we created a prototype, never took it to the market, but it was a, it was a concept piece that we dubbed our iPad. And, you know, this was, you know, this is post Newton having come out from Apple you know, as kind of the, the, the pad, the personal digital assistant, as they were called at that point in time. And so we, we built a device that was a touchscreen with a stylus uh, that was to connect wirelessly. And it was just, it was a concept piece. And we, we dubbed it the iPad. Never saw the market. Uh, but uh, but I've, I've, got, I've got one of those in my office as well. It's not framed on the wall because it, it never made it to product to the market. But it, it continued on that same eye influence of, of information, uh, you know, uh, information appliances. So, All right. So what, what year did you develop that? Oh, my goodness. I don't know. So we sold the company in, uh, in May of 2000 to Cisco. So I would have to say that was probably uh, probably 1999 uh, when that was uh, when that prototype was developed. 